Okay, everybody, this is a huge treat today. I have on an old friend of mine, an incredibly talented actress, vocalist, musician, advocate, writer, director, producer, Bonnie Root, who I met on the set of Trinity, an NBC show that we did for John Wells years ago in the late 90s. She has an incredible story. I'm going to let her tell you her story. So welcome, Bonnie. Ah, thank you. Hi. Hi. Your art really reflects your life. And especially in your, in the past, I would say 12, 13 years, you've done some amazing work that goes to the old adage. If you have to live through it, then you might as well make money on it and use it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yes. We have to turn those, uh, write those things into gifts as often as we possibly can. Um, Yeah. And I think it's important to share those things too, because that's where the healing happens, you know, is bringing it out of the shadows and storytelling, I think is a a huge empathy machine, you know, it's there to educate and to um, enlighten and uh, make people feel less alone, you know? Um, So, yeah, I mean, I, started acting in my late teens um, and got involved in that career. I was of course drawn to it because I think, I think in many ways, given, you know, the childhood that I had, I, I really um, was drawn to human behavior, you know, and had a real curiosity. I wanted to understand what I had been through. I want to understand, you know, how uh, and why human beings do certain things or react in certain ways. Um, so that helped me bring, I think, you know, a depth and a curiosity to my, uh, acting craft, um, you know, and then just for now, like cutting, you know, forward to about, you know, 10, 12 years ago after having, you know, been been an actress, worked in television, I, I was kind of coming to the point where I thought, you know, I feel like for whatever reason I've explored, you know, so, so fully as much as I could under, um, under the direction of, you know, other storytellers, I was like, okay, I've, I've gotten a few roles, a few stories that have been close to my experience. And then I, I realized, you know, there's, there's these things called digital cameras now, you know, like people are starting to, uh, have the ability to shoot their own stuff and have it not cost a millions and millions of dollars, you know? Um, so I thought I'm going to make a short film and um, I'm going to write it and direct it. And I'm, you know, going to attempt to share uh, an aspect of my life. And Sissy was my, you know, directorial debut. I wrote, produced and directed it. It was quite the experience um, when I first, you know, thought that I was going to do that. I had no idea. I mean, I had been on set, of course, and seen, you know, television shows operate and, and, and films, but I wasn't really behind the scenes, you know, putting the team together, crewing, putting all those pieces together. So that was, that was a huge learning experience, but also to be sharing this really intimate, um, difficult story from my childhood with all these people um and then knowing that i was gonna put it out there to some degree to the world um and i mean perhaps at some point as we talk today we might get further into what that story is in my childhood but the short film that i wrote and directed um was about a really uh unique um 
experience in my life. Uh, when I was 14 years old, my, my parents had gone through some, you know, very tumultuous stuff. Our, our family had had some incredibly difficult experiences for many reasons and they were splitting up and my mom was having a very difficult time. And so my, uh, home life was just a mess. I was, you know, sleeping on people's couches, homeless, kind of, you know, looking for a place to sleep every week, finding some new place to, you know, hang out and get away from my home. And for some reason, you know, my mom really, I think doing the best that she could at the time, um, she got a phone call from a friend of a friend of a family member, you know, uh, saying that there was this traveling magician comedian guy working for national school assemblies. And he had contacted the family. Now I didn't know this until years later, but he had first asked that my, at the time, uh, I think 10 and a half, 11 year old cousin accompany him alone on the road um, to go travel all throughout the desert and be in a car alone with him. Um, since I was kind of already, you know, running around on the streets and not coming home and, you know, all of that, I think my mom thought that perhaps in her mind, it would be, you know, like a safe place for me to be or something like that to get me off the street for a few months. So I ended up hopping into a car with, you know, a, 35 year old man who I did not know was probably bipolar and an alcoholic and all kinds of other things. And he was doing a tour of magic shows um, all across uh, New Mexico, Arizona and Nevada, mostly on Native American reservations at the boarding schools and stuff. A couple of shows at jails. <laughs> um like juvenile detention centers. And uh, my job was to be his a pers personal assistant, you know, help like set up the tricks and, um, you know, be his traveling companion, make sure that he didn't get lonely. And that turned into like weird things like making him slow gin cocktails and learning how to roll a blunt. And, uh, <laughs> you know, just stuff that 14 year olds are doing all the time. Uh, As one does. Yeah. And learning how to, you know, drive a stick shift and, and roll a blunt at the same time. And, and after a while, you know, that relationship um, evolved into one that was very complex because the further and further I got away from home and the more comfortable he got really with seeing that there wasn't a support system for me. There wasn't a parent calling, you know, to say, is Bonnie okay? Uh, is she alive? Is there anything going on? I think he just kind of saw, well, I, this is like a, you know, open invitation um, to do whatever I want. And, and he was very crafty about it. You know, he was very good at what he did because it wasn't an outright attack. It wasn't um, anything like that, that normally makes sense in our brains. It was a slow grooming. It was um, at first, you know, he attacked my self-confidence, you know, it was, it was all the time. Why are you doing that that way? Are you stupid? Uh, you know, do you have your head on straight? You'd leave your head behind if it wasn't attached, you know, um, why can't you do this? Why can't you do that to the point where I really, you know, I mean, I already had a damaged, you know, self-esteem uh, and value and instinct issue, um, but he was definitely capitalizing on that. And that got me into a very, very vulnerable place because I'm going, I'm 14 years old. I have no money. I'm thousands of miles away from home. And, and my mom doesn't really want me at home right now. And um, so I have to make the best of this situation that I possibly can. And, you know, based on other things I had seen in my life, I, I guess things I had witnessed, or I was just desperate to find something that would work um, and perhaps, you know, um, put me in a place where I was being treated a little better. Um, so, you know, all of this kind of um, eroding of my self-esteem, then I start to feel very lonely. You know, I haven't 
been hugged by anyone, you know, for a month at a certain point. And and then his next thing was to not uh, feed me. You know, we would go into a restaurant and he would order a burger and then he would tell the waitress, you know, she's not having anything. And I would nibble on the crackers and then he got me a rusty old tea kettle and would just, you know, dump some chili in there and go, okay, here's your meal for the day. And uh, and I just, you know, I got it in my head one day. I thought, well, I wonder if I could somehow become his girlfriend, you know, to some degree, if maybe if he thought of me that way, maybe that's some way I could provide some value here. Since I'm so stupid, I can't do anything right. And I'm obviously just a dumb girl that nobody cares about, then, you know, maybe I can offer him some kind of sexual favor or act or, you know, something that will, you know, make him not uh, leave me on the street or, you know, maybe I'll get to order a sandwich um, next time we're at a restaurant. And so that's how that evolved. And um, I think the, the most important thing about making that film for me, the nugget of it that I really wanted to communicate to other women out there is that it's not always a, a situation where it's a clear cut violent rape or it's a clear cut attack. Um, you know, there are situations where you can be groomed and slowly gaslit like a frog slowly boiling in water, you know, and um, and you just find yourself doing things and saying things that don't make any sense to you. But the cognitive dissonance, you know, and of course, if you're coming from a, a childhood situation where you have already been primed. And in my case, I was raised in a very, um, you know, kind of outsider uh, strict religion um, that had introduced that kind of cognitive dissonance to me early on. Um, and also, you know, there were problems we might get into later, you know, with my mother and father, but, but I just um, found myself in the situation at 14 years old, coming up with the idea of, you know, I'll offer myself to him. And so for many, many years, you know, coming out from that experience, there was one part of me that would, if I were sharing the story with someone, I would say, uh, oh, yes, I know that it was wrong. I know somehow I was, you know, victimized. You know, that was bad that my mom put me in that situation. And that man was weird for wanting me with him. But inside, I had another voice going, Bonnie, you know, you offered yourself to him. You know, you knew what sex was. You knew about things like that. You know, you had already uh, kissed and done things with boys at school. You had been sexually active to some degree with other boys your age. Um, you know, like maybe maybe you wanted this. You know, you're you were probably an equal participant. Somehow this is your fault. And it took me so long to untangle that. I had no idea. I had never heard the word grooming before. I didn't know that there were predators out there that know how to approach a vulnerable person and identify um, that you are, first of all, in a vulnerable position. Maybe, you know, you don't have a support system. Maybe you're going through a difficult time in your life and you are looking for answers. You're looking for a savior. You're looking for direction from someone. Um, and, and I was a child, obviously, so I'm looking for all those things. This also happens to adult, you know, women and men all, all the time. Um, we find ourselves in these really vulnerable moments. And there are people who, you know, I guess they pick up on that and they enter your life. And then they start first with, you know, providing what it is maybe they think you're looking for, whether it's answers or direction or feeling like you have a savior or someplace where you're finally going to be safe. And then they use that control to their advantage and they start to slowly introduce um, this kind of negative reinforcement, you know, to, to create an environment where you're constantly questioning your own 
instincts or your own ability to uh, make decisions or just operate in the world. And then, you know, that's where the whatever it is that they're after, whether it's control or it's, you know, sexual things that they want or they just want to dominate you and and get you to do whatever degrading things, you know, or whatever that is. That was kind of the thing I was trying to convey is that sometimes we can even find ourselves in a position where we were the ones who offered ourselves. We, we in even maybe initiated the behavior and then go on for years, assuming that the whole thing really is our fault. And that resonates with the kind of, I'm a piece of garbage. I don't have any value narrative too. So they kind of really are like, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. But the difference here is that the boys that you kissed or had some contact with sexually, you didn't need a sandwich. And in this case, you were doing what you needed to do in order to get what you needed to stay alive. Right. So I would challenge that narrative. Actually, I would challenge you to think about you at a very young age figured out how am I going to get from this man what I need to survive? That is very smart. It's very self-aware. And for me, out of the ashes of what you were put through and what you were living at the time, you really rose and took control of the situation so that you would stay alive. Yes. Yes. So to me, I say kudos to young Bonnie. Well, thank you. And yes, that's true. And I think that's where, you know, that's where coping mechanisms can be so tricky. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first times this was explained to me in a way that I could understand, I did a, a like a spiritual healing session with this man, Christopher, who's amazing. And he just does them not for money or anything. It's just something that he does for, you know, people that need healing. And, you know, I think we were working on some like chakra healing and I got to like the root chakra section of the healing. And I saw an image of myself as a child. And I was just skin and bones in, in a rag. It was clear. I was starving to death and I was in a cave in a dark cave. And there was a beast chained to the wall in front of the cave that had rows and rows of sharp teeth and was snapping and barking and snarling. And I, and I got, you know, I came out of the, the vision that he led me into and we broke it down. And he said, So here's what happened, you know, like that's a symbolic representation of the coping mechanisms that you devised very wisely for yourself as a child. And they worked and they got you through and you're alive and you're here. And now the next layer, the really difficult work that's left to do is to go back. And he had me walk to the beast that was barking and snarling and approach it and wrap my arms around it and say, thank you, thank you, but I'm starving. My inner child, my innocence, my peace is starving to death. I cannot get light, I cannot get nourishment and I don't need you anymore. So thank you for everything you did and now I'm gonna release you and let that child come out into the light and have contact with my innocence again. This is the whole point of a bootstrap bitch is for people like you who are able to recognize that and recognize that your innocence was taken, recognize that your childhood was thwarted and uh, stolen from you. And yet you're able to wrap your arms around the beast thank it, be grateful for it, and move and move on. 
That's the whole point is when you're at your lowest, when you're at the, when you're on, as Jennifer Esposito says, when you're on the mat and everybody's telling you to stay down, how do you get back up? You weren't just on the mat, you were the mat. And as a child, to be able to, but the fact that that, that one instance or that time in your life is the thing that you chose to write about when there's so many other things that you could have explored. But I find it very interesting that that moment, that that period in your life is the thing that encapsulates your entire childhood. Because when you see this film, you pretty much know how it all went prior to that moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so my question is, A, how did you have the, the bravery and the strength to make this film when it was so incredibly personal and so hard for, it's, it's hard material and it's, I'm sure it was very hard for you to make and it's very hard to watch. Okay, I have a couple of thoughts about that. And one I would say, you know, it makes me think of uh, Brene Brown, <laughs> you know, and what she says about courage and vulnerability. And I, I had, at that point, I, I, um, I thought at first, you know, I'm just looking to branch out creatively. And I thought, I mean, this is an incredible story. I was 14 years old traveling with a ranting, raving lunatic magician across Native American reservation land. You know, I mean, just visually, cinematically, all of that at first. And then I realized, you know, I had come to a place in my life where I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't go on any longer. Um, keeping these things to myself or hoping that people wouldn't find out these things about me. Like if you want to just reverse back for a second, like back during the time when we were working on Trinity and I was in my early twenties and we, and we were like, I was experiencing being on a red carpet for the first time and doing EPKs. I was sweating bullets I mean, I was grabbing wads of paper towels and holding them in between my hands and soaking them just trying to get through that because I was so afraid that someone was going to find out that I was damaged goods, that someone was going to find out. It makes me get choked up saying that. You okay? That's a lot, Bonnie. How did you make it out of your childhood to be even on a red carpet <laughs> and then how now do you have the wherewithal to not only write and direct and produce sissy but it wins best film downtown la it, it won in amsterdam it won at london boot i mean it has won so many awards and now you you're you're even taking it further becoming an advocate having your own movie fund, I fund women. How do you do that? How did you do that? <laughs> I mean, I think some of it I'm going to say is a kind of luck or just a, a, a bunch of different factors, a perfect storm of factors that um, I was very outspoken as a child. I had some sort of sense of knowing that I, I just, I, it's, I mean, it sounds so cliche to say this, but you know, when I was a little girl, I remember there was like a rerun of paper moon on television and I saw Tatum O'Neill in that movie. And I just, and I knew I wanted to be an actor and I wanted to be a storyteller. And then I put myself through my own acting school as I would escape from the horrors in my house. My father was a brutal alcoholic. He was very violent. He was a sociopath. Um, we all lived in fear of him all day, every day. 
anything could happen. Any act of violence could happen at any moment. So I hid, I went to the basement, I played with my toys. I, you know, I made up worlds. I made up stories and I escaped into them. I would pretend all kinds of things. I would pretend I was in a war-torn country and I was, you know, watching my whole family get killed in front of me. And I was like making fake blood and putting it all over my hands. And, you know, like that was my way of, of surviving it, of tuning it out. That's really interesting because you said with the man who you were traveling with, you figured if I play this role of his girlfriend, perhaps I will have more value. And in yeah. having more value, he will treat me better. So you're playing pretend, so to speak, creating your own worlds, play acting, creating mm -hmm. these roles really informed you in, in that moment how to now play that role. So all of that childhood <laughs> play informed you to how to survive. Yeah. Well, I think it probably too goes hand in hand with, uh, you know, things like hypervigilance, you know, when you're in that environment, you, you become a very good listener. You are so acutely aware of your surroundings and any mood shift or any tonal shift and you learn how to pick up on it. You learn how to just, you know, hear every little pin drop. And so, you know, that certainly like attuned me to so much early on. So, you know, cut forward. I think I was, I was a teenager. I had, there's so much of this story to tell, Alicia. I don't know how to cover all of it. So I'm bouncing around as I can, you know, obviously, you know, by telling you the story about the magician, you can probably gather on your own that I had to drop out of high school. But I kept asking myself, you know, when I was bouncing around from home to home and, you know, sometimes when I got a little bit older living with a boyfriend or something, but I was like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do for a living? And I somehow you know, some goddess somewhere out there in the universe was whispering in my ear and just kept saying, you know, you got to write or become an actor. And I remember I, I got myself into community college somehow, and I was uh, writing short stories. And one of my professors pulled me aside and she said, I don't, she goes, I don't know how to tell you this, but I could publish these right now. I mean, and somehow in that moment in my life, I hit another rough patch, like, right, my whole, all of my teen years were constantly, oh, I have to move all of a sudden again. Oh, I got to move on. Oh, some other thing has blown up because when you have no savings and you have no support system, you're just kind of, you know. So let me ask you this. Hold on. And then I, I want to get back to the essays. But did you ever come home again? I mean, obviously you're alive um, and you did get a sandwich not to make yeah. light of it, but <laughs> we need a little humor here. Um, yeah. uh, did you ever go back home or how long were you on the road with this man? So I was out with him for three months. Okay. And then he abandoned me at a laundromat. Um, I mean, there's, there's some other details what I didn't cover. I mean, perhaps the, saving some of this for the feature, but um, I had the wherewithal after being dumped outside of Phoenix in the middle of the night at a laundromat and figuring out at three o'clock in the morning, he was most certainly not coming back. I went out and uh, I had some quarters left from the laundry that he, because he'd left me to do the laundry. He left even his own clothes behind. <laughs> I had the wherewithal to go out and look through the yellow pages. And I remembered that there were some neighbors that used to live next to us that I remembered my mom saying had moved to Phoenix. And I called them and they came and picked me up. And I stayed at their house, um, which is altogether another story and somewhat darkly absurd and funny, but I'll save that for another day. Uh, <laughs> it was always a wild ride. Somehow I never seemed to land anywhere that was peaceful or normal, like everywhere I went. It was like, oh, these people are Lutherans. No, they're not. They're swingers that do cocaine. I, you know, it was just... <laughs> always wow I really got to see the shadow side of people but I stayed with them for a little while and at that point was the one time that I went back home 
And at that point um, in my life, you know, my mom had gone through a very, very difficult time. Um, the divorce was very difficult on her. She was a victim of abuse by my father as well. She had a lot of cognitive dissonance going on. She had in that vulnerable moment been somewhat, you know, psychologically seduced by a man who was a former employee of hers, who was in a uh, maximum security penitentiary, um, for many, many years, he got, then he was in a, you know, position to get out. They started a letter writing thing. Anyways, long story short, he had gotten out of prison and was living in our home. And, um, and our home had been, I'll just say, um, without going over into anywhere dangerous that we'll have to edit out later, there were many criminal things happening inside this home. And my little sister, who was only, you know, about six and a half at the time, I just remember going home for that one night. And um, and when I got to town, my parents, they didn't even come to pick me up. They sent some neighbor to come and get me. And he was like two hours late. I was like, you know, sitting at a Greyhound bus station or something, you know, that they'd sent me home on. And um, And I came home and I spent one night and I remember waking up in the middle of the night and hearing my little sister just sobbing. And I opened the bathroom door. I was in the bathroom and she was just quietly sobbing to herself. And she was walking up and down the hallway like a ghost. And she just was saying over and over again, nobody loves me. Nobody loves me. Nobody loves me. Nobody loves me. And I, I remember coming out of the bathroom and I grabbed her by the shoulders and I shook her and I said, wake up. You have to do everything they tell you to do and you got to fake your way and that's how you're going to survive. And as soon as you're old enough, you're going to get out of here. They don't love you. And the, the sooner you accept, accept that, the sooner you're going to find a way out of this and survive it. And that was the last time I, you know, really ever spent a night as a child in that home. Where did you go after that? I moved in with a family. My, my friend Colleen, her parents, Natalie and John, moved me in with them. Um, and, you know, that was a bag of tricks all of its own, too. I mean. So at this point, you were 15? Yeah. So there was no possible way that you could emancipate and take your sister with you. No, mm -mm, mm -mm. there was no family. I mean, I think your grandmother was just as bad. Well, my grand, my grandmother was already dealing with, you know, other members of the family that were struggling. So she, you know, had a full house. Um, we didn't have a lot of other relatives around. There was, you know, I had an aunt, but she had, you know, a lot of issues like that going on as well. Um, my younger sister ended up, she did end up pulling it together. And a few, few years later, uh, she was only 12. She left home and she lived in the homeless bum camps by the railroad tracks. She was with a group of kids and they used to, you know, hot box cars like back in the old timey days. And at 12, at 12. And then she, at 15, met her um, now husband, and they have been together for, I think, 20, gosh, 15 to 25, 25 to 35, 35, 25, 20, 26 years now they've been together. Uh, they're both social workers. My younger sister, um, you know, lived through the horrors of that life and homelessness. And then, um, you know, about a 10 year long period of very, very severe depression. And then she pulled herself up by her bitch's bootstraps and she enrolled in school. And, um, and then she uh, got into a grant writing class and she wrote uh, uh, to uh, the Ford Family Foundation, and she won that grant, and uh, they paid for the entire rest of her schooling, and she's like an incredible social worker now who runs uh, Dignity Village in Portland, which is a houseless village that's been around since 2002, and her husband is also a social worker who works for the state, and he takes care of, 
you know, thousands of uh, young people who are transitioning from um, having been in foster care to young adulthood and helping them, you know, access resources. They're just like, and you know, an incredible inspiration to me every day. Both do, they, of them. Do, do they have children of their own? They do. They have a son. They had a son when they were really young. Um, his name is Raven Amadeus. He goes by David now. <laughs> <laughs> how i mean your story is just so it's it's so painful but yet i find so much glory in it that you and your sister i believe there's another sibling yeah i have an older brother and an older sister okay so there's four of you mm-hmm mm-hmm so i don't know about them but hearing your story and your sister's story the both of you are nothing short of highly intelligent. So it's very interesting to me that this, that you were also self-aware because you had to be, but you were all the complete opposite of what the magician was trying to tell you and the way your family your, and the way you were raised is the complete opposite of how your brains actually work. And I'm sure your older brother and your older sister are just as brilliant as you are. Yeah, they're both amazing. So your parents created, the two of them together created such turmoil and havoc and abuse and and torturous uh, life for the four of you, but they also created four really brilliant minds. You know, and I think that's something else I love to talk about when I do get a chance to speak you know, more with the public talking about issues like this, PTSD, you know, uh, cognitive dissonance, hyper, hyper vigilance, all, all the aspects of it. Um, this is something that, and I've been talking about this so much lately, it's been on my mind, is the power um, that, that that kind of, let's say, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. It's, really incredible how such highly sensitive, intelligent people um, put in the right circumstance can in all of just a matter of maybe a couple moments or maybe a couple of months with the right kind of manipulation and the right kind of negative reinforcement, we can really just completely forget that we are capable, that we are strong, that we are smart, that we are, you know, able. It's it's like it's it's wiped from your mind somehow. And I think that there's just there's there's something to that to to creating more awareness and talking about that because I think a lot of people out there who have been abused or are being abused um, think that it's happening to them because of the very thing that the abuser is saying, because you're stupid, you're stupid, or you're irresponsible, or you're unaccountable, all these things that you should be ashamed of. You know, you you invited this into your life. You did this. You created this situation. Um, and there's a, there's a really interesting, you know, of course, line there because you know, in order to heal, of course, we we have to get to some point where there is uh, some ability to be accountable for our healing, you know. But I think it gets confusing in this world of self-help and memes that get carelessly, you know, tossed around out there without a context and stuff like that. We can easily mistake, you know, um, those things for meaning that we, you know, we're responsible for all of it. And there's a really important step, you know, in the trauma healing that we have to understand, you know, first you have to work through the fact that you were victimized. You know, there has to be radical compassion, radical acceptance, really radical self-love and compassion first has to happen around these things that occurred before we can ever get to the step 
where now we're working in the world of, you know, accountability and, you know, what kind of healing modalities am I going to employ and, you know, on all of that. But it's really, really a tricky journey. And you, it's like how people get frustrated, you know, with their friends, you know, or family members who are in something abusive. Why can't you just get out? Why don't you just leave? Why don't you just protect yourself? Why don't you just change your boundaries? Well, well in a way, isn't it very similar to like a Stockholm syndrome where, yeah. yes, where the, the person who's being kidnapped actually feels for the kidnapper and has a certain relationship. Yeah. Because our, our minds and our, our, you know, executive functions are so much more fragile and susceptible, I think, than we ever want to admit. And I think that that's a step that our society needs to kind of reflect on is that we, if we could get into that work, wow, how fragile and susceptible are we all? Then maybe we could begin to possibly avoid and see the signs of some of these things that could come into our lives and throw us off track. But we're just, you know, I forget I was going to making another point, but there's just a. Um, well, there's sorry. a there. No, no, no. Because what what you're talking about um, in, in the healing process that all your yeah. siblings had to go through coming out of that house of horrors is resiliency. And resiliency is something I do not believe. I mean, maybe it can be taught, but I do believe that when you're living in that, I always say when you're living at that stage of orange, where it's, you know, high, high alert, mm -hmm. your whole body is just filled with cortisol from the moment right. you're a child and, until you can start to heal. Yeah. And there is the art of resiliency and how your siblings learned to, like you said, the coping mechanisms, what we need to cope to get not only out of this orange situation, but to how once we're out of it and looking back, realizing what we were born into and what we had to endure until we could get out. How do you let that go? Mm. How do you let the orange go? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you ever listened to an episode that I did with Eben Britton, who was a right offensive tackle for uh, the Jaguars and uh, I believe the Bears. Oh, wow. 28, he retired because he was so injured, but he himself had to figure out, okay, let's see, I'm almost 300 pounds. I'm six foot six. I get paid tons of money to tackle large men and I'm lauded for my anger and my rage. Now, what do I do with it now that I'm 28 and retired? Yeah. How do you come out of the orange? That, so a couple pieces to that is that I don't, I don't like thinking of it like, will I ever completely be out of the orange? I don't know. The only thing I can do is get better at identifying when I am either stepping unconsciously into or creating or recreating even falsely a situation that puts me in that state, you know, just getting better and better and better at going, oh, I'm going down that rabbit hole now oh, that, that thing's about to happen. And sometimes I take a few steps there and it's really about trying to work at eliminating the shame step. Why did I go down? You know, why did I let that happen? Why did I let those thoughts creep in again and let my cortisol flood my body and throw my, you know, day off track or throw my relationship off track or whatever, eliminating that, uh, why, you know, I'm so, God, why am I so, and just going, okay, it happened. Okay. I'm a person who has a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma. And it, 
radical compassion. It's never going to go away. If, and I have found many, many ways to look at that as gifts. I'm a gifted storyteller. I'm a gifted singer. I can connect with people. That has, I've had these incredible experiences in my life of opening up, self-disclosing in a brutally vulnerable, courageous way and having that help another person come out and share their story, come out and start to seek healing. I've seen it happen and it's just the most incredible thing. And that's a gift. Seeing it as that. So is forgiveness. And you in healing or in being still in the process of healing, because for me, I don't know that from until the day you're dead, I don't think there's enough apologies, enough forgiveness for your parents and for their parents and their parents who introduced them to this abusive, horrific way of parenting and of living. So the fact that you have forgiven parents, your mom. Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you forgive them? Well, this is what ties in the acting and the storytelling. You know, one of the things, okay, going back to Sissy for a second, when I had to hire the actor, cast the actor who was going to play the magician that abused me, I hired this brilliant actor, Peter Giles, who so compassionately and without judgment immersed himself into what this guy's life must have been like for him to wind up a person who could do things like that. And then having those discussions with him as the director completely healed me. I sat there with him and experienced the backstory. And I'm not saying it doesn't excuse the abuse. It doesn't excuse the abuse. I'm not saying that that's right, that that happened. But I understood how that man could wind up in a place where he could justify and rationalize acts like that and what his private moments alone probably were like and probably were punishment enough. Then when I started to get into that work and I started to understand and be more curious. So I went and did the forum at Landmark and did the advanced course and did a bunch of seminars there. That like was the huge turning point in my life. My my stepfather, who I, I mentioned was the criminal, he had kind of conned my mother, like all of these things were weighing on me. And right at the same time that I was making Sissy, it was like right on the heels of that, I went and did the forum. And that led to me making some phone calls to my stepdad, to my mom. Um, my father, unfortunately, was already passed away, but I, I wrote a letter to him. I started really getting how little control they had over their lives and how their childhoods had informed them and what was missing from there. They didn't have access to tools like I have. They they didn't have access to therapy. Therapy was something that was kind of sort of maybe way later on when they were already in middle life, like, uh, you know, discussed on Phil Donahue or something, you know, like maybe Oprah started to kind of, you know, but I, I really started to get that. I went, wow, I'm going to get really, really curious about, you know, I didn't know that my father was sexually abused by his brother throughout his entire childhood and that his own parents viciously beat him and forced him to drink his own urine as a punishment. I mean, talk about darkness, unimaginable darkness. I'm surprised that my father did as well as he did with, I mean, I'm, you know, when I found everything, I, I thought, I don't know how he didn't just end up, you know, murdering all of us. And and my mom, you know, was abandoned as a child and she was viciously beaten by her father. It's it's a cycle of abuse and it's ancestral and it continues on and on and on. And the best that we can do is with the tools that we have now is to heal ourselves And what we can heal of ourselves, hopefully, you know, we can help, you know, heal our families too, you know, or we can at least introduce the idea of it. So for you then, the hypothesis and then the whole thesis is radical compassion 
radical understanding, and not just from a sympathetic point of view, but from an empathic point of view, yeah, and an intellectual deep dive into your parents allowed you to forgive them. Mm-hmm. But it all comes from having compassion to the lives they led prior to you to understand then why you had the childhood you had and has led you to become a very profoundly forgiving woman. And yes, and that doesn't mean that I don't have boundaries. My boundaries are constantly tested. That is something I'll always have to work with. My brain and my heart will always want to respond to a message of you're stupid, you're dumb, why are, you, why are you doing it that way? I will respond to that. And then I have to check and go, mm, no, I love myself. I love myself and I'm good. I'm good here. Has your mother ever apologized? Yes, there's, there's, been, there's been tremendous healing moments, you know, and, and they don't always go exactly the way that I would fantasize in my mind, but when I have found for me, and again, I want to reiterate, I, I, it's okay for me to still grieve sometimes what happened to me as a child. It's okay. I allow, it, I, allow, I allow for me to have feelings of anger come up over what happened to me as a child or even feelings of unfairness or injustice or whatever it is. I allow for that to still happen. Those, I'm not saying that goes away just because I forgive and understand. They, there's room for all of these complexities to exist all at once. Well, you can't erase it. You know, no. our lives and what we have been through, they're the pencil without the eraser. Yeah. So basically, that means there's, it's a Sharpie. You can't, you can't, you can't clean Sharpie, but you can paint over it with something else that's prettier. And that's the whole point of why I like having these conversations because somebody is going to listen to this episode and hear your story and feel your strength and feel your radical compassion and take that as a tool and use that in every aspect of their life. Because if you can come out of that situation, come out of your home survive the magician and have the resume that you have, have the talents that you have, have the fortitude and the bravery to share your story and share your gifts. Then another little girl who might be listening or a little boy or, you know, grown ass people can go, Oh, okay. If she can do that, then I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's my greatest hope with anything, you know, that I create and put out there is that, um, you know, it's meant for connection and healing and to just see the possibilities and to even just meet with people where they are in their pain, in their confusion and say, you're confused and you're lost and you're hurting and that is okay. And however long you need to be in that place, love yourself in that place right here, right now, where you are and know that it's going to be a process and that there is no magic bullet and it doesn't go away, but there are so many beautiful, powerful ways to interact with the pain and the grief and the feeling of being lost and share it with other people and turn it into gold everybody's not coming from a white picket fence, happy household with mom and dad loving each other all the time and dinner's on the table at five and there's no financial worries. There's no life is a dream, right? Not everybody comes from that. Yeah. If I'm hearing you correctly, the way in which that we can hold space for each other and have grace for each other is understanding that we don't know what that person is coming from or what they're going home to. So let us be perhaps their only smile or their only kind word that they're going to hear that day. Yeah. Would you agree with that? 
I absolutely agree 100%. One of the things I wanted to share with you really quick was my stepfather, who I, I mentioned, he's, he's passed away. You know, he was a presence in our family's life. It turned out for 26 years. He conned my mother. He came straight out of prison. He was using our home for all kinds of different criminal activity. It made it a completely uninhabitable place for us. I ended up not setting foot inside of my mother's home for 13 years. Didn't speak to him. I was so full of bitterness and rage and anger over God already on top of what my father had done, the damage that our family had already survived. And then this piece of shit. Well, when I came out of the forum at Landmark, they have you do this process, which is sort of, it's not really an, you're not, I'm not uh, taking responsibility for the situation, but what it is, is, is taking responsibility for being inauthentic. And so I was able to call my stepdad and say, you know, I have been completely inauthentic with you and I just completely dropped off the face of the planet and avoided you and mom altogether. And I never really told you to your face exactly what I think of you, like really what I think of you and what you did to us. And, and I was able to do it right without emotion. I wasn't attacking. I wasn't in a, in a rage or out of control. I was just like, I want to be really authentic with you and let you know how I really feel about you and your, and your actions and the way that you've affected me. And something about the way that I was able to do that, because my agenda in that moment wasn't to get anything. It wasn't to get an apology. It wasn't for this fantasy that I thought I'm going to say this and then he's going to say something that's going to fix my whole life and every, all my problems will go away. It was just a baby step for me in being able to have the power to be more authentic with people, to be more authentic with people who've hurt me or violated my boundaries. And what happened in that moment is my stepfather broke down in absolutely 100% authentic tears. And he said to me, you're right. I was a con artist. I am a con. I am one. And all of the things that I said to you about you being a brat or being a bad person or having no value was 100% made up bullshit so that I could manipulate your mom. You were a good kid. You were lovely and charming and funny and smart and everything I said to you about yourself was a lie. And I'm sorry. And I don't know that I would have ever gotten that. And I wasn't expecting it. Had I just arrived at this place where I could drop that agenda and know that I was going to be in a healing process for the rest of my life. You wrote your, your dad a letter. Did you ever talk to him in the same way in, in the letter I was able to, um, you know, unfortunately near the end of my father, my dad was really, really old when he had me as a dad, you know, like, so he was already, by the time I was 30, he was like 87 or 80, 88, somewhere around there. Um, he, he was, he was in a place where he would just, he would just call and, and cry. He would just sob uncontrollably on the phone. He couldn't, I couldn't even make out what he was saying. And then I would just say, is there something you're trying to tell me? Is there something you're trying to communicate? And, and he would just sob incoherently. Um, and, and then I got a phone call, um, Oh my God, it was like six weeks before my wedding. I got a phone call that my father was going to only have about six months to live, that he had cancer that had spread to his spine. And I said, I'm going to take one week for myself, just one week to think about how I want to approach this and how much I want to be involved and what my boundaries will be. And, and he died 
um, right before that week was up. And I felt like that was the universe's answer, you know, was really like, this was meant to be this way. He went peacefully, you know, he got a headache and went to sleep and he, and he passed away. And yeah. So, you know, later on around that same time when I was having that experience with my, with my mom and my stepdad, I just, you know, wrote a letter and I really felt like I, like I got curious about what had happened to him as a child. I started to just see the whole world as this bigger picture of like, wow, so much trauma. Like we all have trauma, generational trauma, cultural trauma. It's everywhere, you know, sexism, racism, classism. It's, it's all of these situations that affect people. You know, I think one of the things that's funny about American culture, you know, and about the pull yourself up by your bootstraps narrative is like, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, you know, to some degree, we trick ourselves into believing we have all this tremendous amount of free will. And there's actually a lot of limitations that we all deal with every single day. Sorry to interrupt, but simply by virtue of our circumstances. Yeah. 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 And I, and I think it's important to have some awareness and compassion around that every single day, you know, to understand hard things are going to happen. Traumatic things are going to happen. It's about really being authentic and being embracing of our fear, embracing of our pain, embracing of our feelings of I'm lost. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go and sharing it with someone who we're close with that we trust, who can hold our hand and say, I'm not going to tell you that it has to mean something or I'm not going to prescribe anything to you or try to be your guru, but I'm going to sit here and I'm going to hold your hand and say, I too know what it's like to be lost. I do know what it's like to just twist in the wind and not know what to do next. And it's okay because you're loved and you're worth something even in this moment right now. In this past hour, you have laid yourself bare and shared a story that some might relate to it, others might not. But what everybody is going to hear is it's okay. It's okay for us to to feel whatever trauma, to feel whatever pain, it's okay. And as a fellow human being, to allow everybody their grace. You just showed us all really who you are when you said your father went peacefully. I think a lesser human being with not the mass amounts, the radical compassion that you have would have wished otherwise. You know, you live by the sword, you died by the sword. He should have died by the sword. Right. But how, how will we, how will we ever heal as a people, as human beings, you know, if we don't at least make some kind of an attempt to understand those who hurt and how that occurs and why I'm not saying that we have to say that the act itself is okay or, and certainly we're not going to victim shame. This is a very different thing. I'm just saying to be curious because that's how we're going to heal and unite and not be divided. I think that's a mic drop. Bonnie, thank you so much (laughs) for coming on this episode today of Bootstrap Bitch. And I thank you so very, very much for giving me your time and for sharing your, your life and for being really brave in doing that. I Thank very you. much appreciate it. And I know my listeners will appreciate it. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you for providing a platform to uplift people's voices and stories to be heard. It's a, it's a healing. I think this is the way, you know. Your eyes, one last 
sign Come so close Fell down so high I said my lines I paid the pie I paid my pie Now there's so many high things We gotta do And the first one Is you Goodbye to you So many nights I naked on the floor Good little girl Thought I could take a little more I made the deal Thought I'd never have to pay I gotta pay Say goodbye. 